Hi, and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaforis, and in this episode of our special series on COVID-19, I speak with Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor Michael Kidd, about rapid antigen testing in the disability sector, vaccination when there's a substitute decision maker, and much more. Check it out. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, George. It's uh, great, uh, great to have the opportunity to be with you today. Now, for people that don't know, can you tell us about your role as the definite medical officer? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to do so. So I'm a medical practitioner. I'm a general practitioner by background. Uh, I joined the Australian Government Department of Health in March last year, just as the pandemic was, uh, was beginning. I came back to Australia from overseas. I was working overseas as director of the World Health Organization Center for Primary Care um, based in, uh, in Canada. And, uh, and my role as, as Deputy Chief Medical Officer is to provide medical advice to the Australian government and to the Department of Health, uh, particularly on the development of health policy and on the development and rollout of health programs. And as you can imagine, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we've been very busy uh, developing a lot of health policy uh, on the run uh, as this pandemic has unfolded uh, here in Australia and around the world. My particular area of expertise and responsibility is in primary healthcare, primary care and general practice. So healthcare outside of hospital settings. And, uh, and of course, much of the work that we're doing with COVID-19 is occurring out in the community. It's the public health measures, it's the vaccination programs, it's the testing, it's the care for people with COVID who don't need to be hospitalised. So it's been a very busy time. I've been working with a lot of stakeholder groups and of course you and I have been involved with the, uh, the Disability Advisory Committee providing uh, advice to the Australian Government. But I've also been involved with many other uh, stakeholder groups, uh, making sure that the, voice, the voices of the people of Australia are informing uh, the national healthcare policy at this really challenging time. Yes, very important work. This this particular series um, is about um, helping us all to understand what we need to do to live with COVID. And I just want to ask you, as our um, Chief Medical Officer, or Deputy Chief Medical Officer, uh, what do people in this village need to do um, to prepare for a situation, for example, where we or someone in our household or in our support team um, becomes COVID positive? Yes, well, firstly, of course, we want to be 
preventing people from becoming infected with COVID. And uh, much of the focus has been on vaccination and the importance of vaccination. And it's been really wonderful to see so many people across Australia uh, turn up and get their first two doses of the COVID-19 uh, vaccines. And, uh, and of course, now we're starting booster programs for people as well. But it's not just vaccination. It's also all the other public health measures which have been in place, of course, since March of last year. It's uh, the wearing of masks. It's the appropriate physical distancing. It's people, if they do get symptoms, um, staying home away from other people and going to get uh, tested to reduce the likelihood of transmitting to other people. But we're also, of course, as you say, preparing to live with COVID-19 and accepting that as our borders open, both our internal borders between states and territories in Australia, but also our international borders, that there will be more transmission of COVID-19 occurring in Australia, which of course is what we've seen in so many other countries also around the world. Now, because the majority of our population are protected with vaccination from becoming seriously unwell if infected with COVID-19, now is a much safer time to be opening up our borders. We're not opening up uh, quickly, we're opening up progressively uh, over, the, uh, over the weeks and months ahead. But if someone in your household does become infected with COVID-19, it's going to be very important to monitor that, that person's health uh, to make sure they're not becoming seriously unwell. And hopefully people will be reaching out to their general practitioner. Uh, we will have a hotline available through Health Direct for people infected with COVID-19 to be able to talk regularly uh, to a healthcare professional to get advice. And if people do become uh, seriously unwell with uh, symptoms of COVID-19, then to know when is it going to be time to call an ambulance, when is it going to be time to go to the hospital. At the same time, it's going to be important to try and prevent transmission of COVID-19 from the infected person in the home to other people in the home. Uh, so we'll, uh, we have advice on how to reduce transmission within the home. And also one of the areas which uh, we haven't been talking a lot about, but which I'm very concerned about, is the mental health impact of being infected with COVID-19. There are a lot of people who we know are very anxious about uh, COVID-19, if they do get infected, are going to be very worried about what does this mean. The vast majority of people infected with COVID-19, if they're double vaccinated, are only going to have mild symptoms if they have any symptoms at all. But I expect that many people will still be anxious and wanting to reach out for advice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, um, I think we need to look at this from a you know, a, a psychological element as well. I, I, I'm very um, yeah, aware of someone who, you know, hasn't really left the house much since uh, the, the pandemic began, that, um, that, that there is a need to, to think about the impact of, of, of 
um, COVID on our mental health and also um, if you do become positive and you know, how, you, how that affects you both um, physically and, and, and mentally. I'd, I'd like to turn to the issue of uh, rapid antigen tests, which I, I find very exciting in a kind of nerdy kind of way. Um, can you talk to us about the role of these tests, particularly how you see the role playing out in the disability sector? Yes, it's a really important uh, question, George. So most people will be used to the COVID-19 PCR tests. These are the tests which we've been having over the last uh, two years uh, where you have where you go somewhere and usually a nurse uh, will swab the back of your nose and the back of your throat, send that specimen away, and sometime between 12 hours, sometimes a couple of days, uh, you'll get notified about your result. The rapid antigen tests, of course, provide uh, a result almost straight away. And these are tests which you can do yourself at home. So there are now uh, self-test kits which are available through uh, chemists and through supermarkets which people can purchase, uh, but also there are uh, test kits which are being done in a number of different uh, healthcare settings, aged care settings, and in different industries uh, where people, before they go into uh, a setting, uh, can have a test done to see if they test positive or negative for COVID-19. The rapid antigen tests, they're not quite as accurate as the traditional tests that we've been using, but they're still very valuable uh, tool in helping to screen out uh, someone who may be uh, positive with COVID-19 from coming into a setting and putting people at risk. We're still working out where will be the most appropriate settings for the use of these tests, uh, how often uh, they would be sensible to do, and, uh, and of course, who pays for the tests to be done? I mean, you can pay yourself by, by purchasing the tests um, from the chemist or the supermarket. Um, but if they're being used, for example, in a hospital or an aged care or disability care facility or a school, who would be paying for those tests? But I, I expect we're going to see quite a big uptake of the tests. It may be, George, that people... Um, with disability in their own home or in a group home uh, would like the people coming into the uh, into your home uh, each day uh, to do a rapid antigen test before coming into the home. Uh, and, of course, this is going to be important where there is significant community transmission of COVID-19 occurring in your state or in your uh, territory. Uh, so at the moment, for example, in Victoria where there's around a 1,000 cases being diagnosed a day, uh, there may be a good argument for the people coming into your home uh, to do a rapid antigen test uh, each day or every if they're coming in each day, every two or three days. And, of course, if someone has a positive rapid antigen test, then they should not come into the facility or into your home. Uh, they should go home. They should get a formal PCR test to confirm whether or not they have COVID-19. So I started um, doing rapid antigen testing um, with my support workers and uh, 
Yeah, I, I've done a bit of research and I've said, I'll do it every three days because um, I understand that that's a, a good number of days. Um, and I, 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 I then think to myself, you know, if I'm double vaccinated, I'm actually triple vaccinated now, but um, if they're all double vaccinated, if the rapid antigen tests, um, uh, you know, so that there's a negative result, then um, it, it really does put my mind at ease, um, which has been part of the problem that I'm constantly stressing out about it because I live in Victoria where, you know, we love COVID down here. Um, <laughs> um, but, but does that mean that I can be more relaxed when it comes to um, social distancing or the use of masks? I mean, what, what do we do when we come to a point where there's you know, different kinds of things that are available to us? Do we keep doing all of them or can we get a bit more relaxed? Look, I think I think at the moment we're we're in a we're in a transition phase with COVID nineteen. So we've been in a position in Australia where we've tried to keep COVID nineteen out of our country, and then we've gone through the phase of uh, vaccinating and offering vaccines to everybody who's in Australia, and now we're moving to a phase where. We expect we will get more cases of COVID-19 in the community and we will start to live with COVID-19. And I think that while we're going through this transition phase, it's still going to be important to adhere to some of the other public health measures as well. So, yes, vaccination of uh, the person with disability and their um, their care workers, their visitors and others is very important. Um, the rapid antigen tests add that extra level of confidence, um, but also I think the importance of hand hygiene, which we've been doing since the beginning of the pandemic, um, the importance of masks, because masks, again, are another uh, added protection against uh, transmission of COVID-19. And of course, very importantly, if someone has symptoms, no matter how mild, of flu or fever or cold, that they stay away and that they arrange to get a formal PCR test uh, carried out. So I think it's this combination of protective measures which are going to be really important um, and uh, so I would, I would still be um, asking people to wear uh, masks. Uh, I think, uh, obviously, if uh, people are providing care, then the physical distancing, of course, is not possible uh, much of the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, washing their hands scrupulously, wearing their mask, uh, and, uh, and the testing as appropriate. Let's, uh, let's talk about boosters, if we can. Um, so when, when, when should we have boosters? And um, I, I understand that, um, that, that even though vaccination is compulsory for support workers, boosters are not compulsory. Um, what, 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 what do you think about that? 
Yes, so really, really uh, important thing to focus on at the moment. So uh, for most people in Australia, if they get two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine, they're currently regarded as being fully vaccinated. For people who are immunocompromised, are taking immunosuppressive medicines um, or have some other reason why their immunity may be reduced, these people, we are recommending a third dose um, now, and that's, uh, after the third dose, uh, they'll be regarded as being fully immunised. However, we're also recommending booster doses six months after your second, uh, your second shot. And, uh, and the booster doses are just going to help to lift the level of protection that people have. They give your immune system a boost, uh, if you like, uh, and they reduce the risk of, uh, if you come in contact with someone with COVID-19, of you uh, being infected and also being at risk of transmitting onto somebody else. Now, many people who get infected are not going to have any symptoms at all. That's what we call asymptomatic infection. Uh, so they may not even know they've got COVID-19, um, but they still may be able to transmit to others. So the booster dose, uh, we're recommending at six months. Now, um, most people in Australia have uh, only had their second or third shot um, within the last six months. So most people aren't yet ready uh, for a booster. But as that six-month point comes, then we're recommending that people get a booster dose. At the moment, uh, there's no mandates for people to get a booster. What we're doing is we're following the research here in Australia, but also around the world, around the benefits of the booster doses. There are a couple of countries which are starting to look at mandating boosters. Israel is one country. Israel is a few months ahead of Australia when it comes to its vaccine uh, rollout. So we're following very closely the research and the evidence uh, to see whether there might be a case for uh, mandating um, booster doses in some situations. At the moment, we don't have the evidence to support that, but we're keeping a very close eye uh, on that. Of course, one of the things, George, which has been confusing during the COVID-19 pandemic is that our advice has changed over time as we've learned more and more about COVID-19. And, uh, and so it may well be that the advice which we're uh, presenting today changes as the evidence changes over the months ahead. Yes, it certainly has been one of those things where we, we learn more and more as time goes on. Um, and, and as someone who's had my, uh, my uh, booster, um, I, I, um, I'm encouraging other people to do the same. I, I felt very uh, uh, relieved when I, I had my booster. I felt like I was, you know, had extra super immunity um, as a result of it. So I encourage others to do so. And I also, um, you know, said to my support workers that, you know, putting your diary work out when you're six months, um, you know, is up and, and book it in because it's, it's good for you and for the people around you that you work with. Professor, I'd like to ask you about a issue that concerns myself and 
other advocates um, greatly. And that's, um, there are people who have uh, substitute decision makers who make decisions for them um, about their health. And for some people, um, their substitute decision makers are deciding not to consent to vaccination. Um, are you aware of this issue? Yes, yes, I am. And I'm, I'm like you, George, I'm very concerned where um, people are making decisions for other people uh, that, uh, that may be contrary to the best interests uh, of, that, uh, of that person. Um, clearly, there are legal and ethical and human rights issues here at play. But as a doctor, um, I, what, what I'd like to see happen here is, you know, often there are reasons why someone won't consent to vaccination. And sometimes sitting down with a trusted uh, GP or trusted nurse or talking to your local pharmacist can help to get to the core of why someone is not supporting vaccination and help them to address the, the concerns they might have and then reach the point where consent for vaccination is provided. I also think, obviously, this is a decision which uh, people who may have uh, decision-making authority need to be making in uh, consultation with the person with disability. Um, so I hope that uh, that those discussions are taking place as well. Yeah, I think it's very important. But I also think that um, as the Deputy CMO, um, it, it's really valuable to hear from you about um, the importance of, the, of, of listening to the science, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And look, we know these vaccines are very effective at preventing people from becoming seriously unwell and at risk of losing their lives from COVID-19. And of course, we know also that many people who have chronic health conditions, which of course includes many people with disability, um, people are at increased risk of becoming seriously unwell. So we need to be doing everything we can uh, to protect people from COVID-19. So I really encourage if people have questions about vaccinations, about the safety of the vaccinations, to talk to your trusted GP, talk to your pharmacist, talk to the nurse uh, at your, your local practice um, and talk through the issues. And what we find is that often if people have that conversation, then they reach a point of being comfortable about uh, having the vaccination themselves and of consenting uh, to their loved one to have the vaccination. Yeah, just, just one other aspect of this. Um, what advice do you have for um, the, the sector, the, the people who, who work alongside um, families where there's this um, vaccine hesitancy? Um, because often um, I'm, I'm hearing of um, providers who are really, you know, struggling to um, put that that message forward. Do you have any any words of advice for them? Yes. Look, what what uh, what we've been doing. You know, we we've had a number of providers who've told us how distressed their staff are 
um, when people who they're providing care to have not been vaccinated and protected. And, uh, and that's especially in places where we currently have community transmission, like in Melbourne and Sydney, but also in other parts of the country where we expect we're going to have community transmission over the weeks and months ahead. One of the, uh, the things which providers have done is to have uh, meetings, so family meetings where you bring in someone, the local general practitioner, local pharmacist, someone who's trusted by the members of the community to talk about vaccination and to address the questions that people might have. And often we've seen after these meetings where people have been able to air their concerns and to hear from a trusted healthcare professional that people have then consented and we've been able to uh, proceed with the vaccinations. Um, so, uh, you know, information sharing, communication, um, listening to trusted voices, these are all important ways of helping to address the concerns uh, which people may have. Yeah, that's very important. Um, before we go, I just, um, I want to ask you a bit of a, a question that's been um, on my mind lately. Um, I, I've um, you know, been in this situation where, um, having been in the pandemic in Victoria, where there's, you know, we've had mandated masks and um, a lot of uh, community transmission, um, do, do you think that um, in 12 months' time that we're going to um, be back to a relatively normal life? What do you predict for the, the next 12 months? For the next 12 months? So, obviously, uh, over the next 12 months, we still have uh, about uh, 20, 15 to 20% of the population aged uh, 12 and above who haven't yet been vaccinated. And obviously, we'd like to see all those people uh, be vaccinated and protected uh, as well. Uh, we're going to have the boosters rolling out, of course, and just like you, I'm very keen to see people uh, get their booster vaccine uh, six months or so after uh, they've had their, uh, their second shot. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID-19. So a year ago, the Delta variant appeared, and that really created a, a disruption to many of our plans. We may see more variants start to appear uh, around the world, and we'll be keeping a close eye on that in Australia. I'm worried about next winter in Australia. I think it's going to be very important that we have a strong campaign to get people immunised against influenza uh, next April and May, because we might have a serious influenza outbreak next winter. We haven't had influenza for the last two winters in Australia, but with things opening up around the world and in Australia, that could be a risk as well. So I think that I'm going to still be busy in my job over the next 12 months because we're still going to have lots of public health challenges. Our knowledge is going to continue to grow around COVID-19. And, of course, we're going to have uh, people who do get infected uh, with COVID-19 in Australia and become seriously uh, unwell. So our healthcare system is going to be uh, under some uh, pressure over that time. At the same time, we know that we're going to have uh, people presenting with 
mental health problems and concerns related to the disruption in our lives over the last two years. And we have some catch up to do because there's lots of people who have not been able to have investigations, operations, uh, appointments with their dentist, with their specialist doctor and with others. So there's going to be a real catch up in our healthcare services over the next 12 months. So it's going to be a busy time, George. Um, and I think that uh, the work that we've been doing with the uh, Disability Advisory Committee, that's going to be really important as well as new issues emerge and making sure that the, the policy being developed by the Australian government is taking heed of the voices of people with disability and making sure that nobody is missing out on the public health measures in our country. Absolutely awesome that that happens. Professor Michael Kidd, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, thank you for joining us. Thank you, George, and thank you for the great work that you've been doing. Thank you for your advocacy, and thank you to all your listeners uh, for, uh, for their active involvement as well. Thank you. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. Brought to you by the Summer Foundation. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for watching, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.